0: Today is Reformation Sunday. Every year around this time, we break from our sermon series to take one or two Sundays to consider uh, the Reformation. Um, On October 31st, about 501 years ago, um, a German monk took 95 propositions, a paper, and he nailed it to the All Saints Church door, which was the bulletin board system of the day. And he wanted to discuss In an academic setting, and he wanted to debate some of the moral corruption, some of the theological misunderstandings, some of the abuses that were going on in the church. Uh, And he wanted to do this, he was a a teacher and a scholar, and he wanted to do this in a certain setting that was popular of the day. However, it never got to that setting, because what ended up happening is it started this wildfire for the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of that time known as the Protestant Reformation, and literally changed history. Um, Again, for the good, for the bad, and for the ugly. So every time around this year, what we do is that we also take time to ask and to seek and to knock on the door of Reformation, and we inquire of the Lord, and we ask a similar question, like, what's up with the church? What's going on in the church? And this isn't just a question as far as uh, what's going on with us at Cornerstone, but us as the church at large. This isn't just about... Uh, us as an organization, but us as the people of God. And we ask God, how would you reform us? How would you mold us by your loving hands? And so this year, Reformation Sunday is going to be in two parts. Uh, Both parts go hand in hand, uh, meaning that you can't really have the one without the other. So I hope everybody will make it next week. Uh, Next week, Tim Deering will be here. He serves on our apostolic oversight team. And he will be bringing the word based off of this premise. So next week, it's this premise. In order to have, as the church, a redemptive exclusivity, meaning a life-giving, God-honoring uniqueness, we need to reform our harmful inclusivity and ask, what are the cords that should bind us together? So he's going to be focusing on, how is the church appropriately supposed to be, quote-unquote, redemptively exclusive? What are the things that define the church apart from, are we just another business? Are we just this other organization that's humanitarian aid? What is the uniqueness of the church and who we are? And how do we need to reform our thinking and our hearts regarding how we see ourselves and align with who God says that we are? But today we're going to consider the flip of that statement. So today the premise is this. In order to have as the church a redemptive inclusivity and all-encompassing gospel invitation, we need to reform our hurtful exclusivity and ask what walls that we have built should come down. What walls that we have built need to come down? Up here you'll see part of... uh, uh, Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes that says there is a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. Um, I lost my clicker. And a time to lose your clicker. And a time... Clicker back there. Oh, hey, Ron, what's up? Gene, is the clicker back there? (laughs) I forgot you guys switched. My fault. So today for our call to worship, um, Ron is going to actually sing a song over us from uh, the artist John Foreman, and the, the name of the song is called Equally Skilled. And this song is largely based off of the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. Um, and back in Amos' day, he wrote poetically about just how messed up things were, just how screwed up the culture and the church, the temple the religious system, was during that day. How people desired corrupt government. How the temple became not only a lifeless, but a life-draining institution. How not even those closest to you could be trusted because everyone was looking out just for themselves. And Amos uh, confesses that he wasn't sinless in all this. Like, he was part of the problem, and he saw that. He's not trying to be this separate entity. He sees his faults in the midst of the bigger system. But he also knew that God was faithful. And so even though both the left hand of grace and the right hand of truth were wicked in the culture and self-defeating, he knew that God was still God. And he knew that the situation, kind of like what Gene prayed earlier, didn't change who God was. And that justice and mercy were still to be found and sought after, rather than just giving up on life, rather than just giving up on... um, the idea of bringing God's kingdom into fruition. So the call for worship, the call to worship today is kind of these these two parts. It's this one of confessing in and of ourselves, both individually and corporately, that we don't have things figured out, that we are messed up, whether that is knowingly or ignorantly, and that we are broken and that we wrestle with sin. We don't always have the answers, nor do we always walk in the light that we do have. But it's also a confession and a call to worship the God that is light. The God that is love. The God that is good and beautiful and true. And that we as his church and his sons and his daughters, as followers of Christ, are choosing not to ignore him. But say, come, spirit, come. That we need to be led both in uh, confession. We need to be led both in uh, uh repentance and we also need to be led in this idea of transformation that things don't need to stay the way that they always have been at least that we've always known them to be but when the light and love of God comes in that way sometimes it's difficult and yet we trust that God ultimately wants to bring life upon life eternal life life that is um, everlasting and abounding in steadfast love and mercy and so we also welcome those things, even though that's a hard thing. When we say God reform us, we're going to need to do some work on our, on our own selves uh, by, by the grace of God and also the work uh, corporately. So for this call to worship, I would ask that you just take a posture of prayer almost um, and let uh, the music and the words speak over you as the Spirit uh, impresses what the Spirit will on you. So in order to, as the church have a redemptive inclusivity, an all-encompassing gospel invitation, we need to reform our hurtful exclusivity and ask what walls that we have built should come down. And so we're going to start and end with these questions today that we should be asking ourselves. First, how do you divide yourself, acting in different situations other than your true self? At work? At, let me let me go to myself at in the church building, am I one person, and then am I another person outside of the church building, and which is my true self? Are there walls in my heart that I've made up to either kind of segregate or to either kind of compartmentalize my life rather than walking in the grace and truth of being who I am? who are your others. We're going to be talking about uh, foreigners a lot here in the text. And yes, there is the direct contextual idea of foreigners being those that are, you know, foreign to uh, our nation. But who are the others that could be the same ethnicity, speak the same language, have the same cultural things, and yet there's something about maybe their values Maybe there's something about um, the way that they enact those values. You have the same shared values, but you don't like the way that those other people do that. Who are your others? Who are the people or the groups of people that you exclude as just too different? I don't want to have to deal with them. They're idiots. Third, how does the church inappropriately separate itself from the world that it is called to love? So now think a little bit broader. And corporately how does the church inappropriately separate itself from the world that it is called to love how have we put up walls saying well we need to protect this so you're over here we'll stay over here in our little refuge and finally if we spend years building or believing something good and then realize that we were wrong will we turn towards the truth and confess our mistakes which is a huge question, especially for the church at this point. And all of these are meant to be, I don't have like a driving home point of this is what I think that we need to do. But these are the questions that the church, as we think about Reformation, as we think about revival, need to be thinking about, in my opinion. And Tim, I'm sure, will have some other questions. Like what if we spent, uh, how old is Cornerstone, 22 years or so? What if for the past 22 years, Cornerstone has um, unintentionally been building a paradigm of ministry or of church that actually was harmful rather than helpful? Like, what if? And what if there's revelation that comes to us that that happened? Are we going to continue with the status quo? Or are we going to receive grace and forgiveness and say, yeah, that We meant well. We didn't enact that the way that God would have wanted us to. That's tough, right? If you build something for years and years and years, and then, ah, I was wrong. Like, do we have the courage in the spirit of God to have those things then tore back down? Who has read the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye? Everybody know the news about I Kissed Dating Goodbye? So for those of you who have not been part of that culture, such as myself, uh, Naomi was, my wife. So in 1997, a 23-year-old guy released a book called I Dated, I, I Dated Kissing. No. I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Now, legitimately, he desired to encourage sincere love between people rather than superficial love and to counterbalance a hookup culture that was prevalent then and continues to be prevalent now. It sold millions of copies and became required reading in some Christian circles. He advocated to not date, but encouraged courtship, and that you shouldn't kiss anybody before marriage or give your heart away. There was also the impression that if you did these things, if you did the right thing, if you performed the the right method, that everything will work out in your marriage and in your bedroom, and happily ever after. Two years ago, the author, his name's Josh Harris, started to reevaluate the book. He started to have some in-depth study and re- research conversations with some people, including his publisher and his uh, uh, academic. I don't know what it would be called, mentor, I guess. And just this week, 20 years later, 21 years later, he released a statement that the book will be discontinued. He stands by certain intentions, but also sees how fear played into a large part of the book, and there was this overemphasis on certain values that he now critiques that were not gospel-oriented, and he apologizes for it. Surely it did connect with some people and it was a good counterbalance for some people. And he's glad that it did uh, help some people, but there was also a flaw in the design. So he used this analogy in his statement. He said, If a car serves some people, but a flaw in its design causes damage to others, good intentions by the car maker and even the endorsement of other customers don't override the problem that there was still a problem. Even if there was some good fruit that came out of it, that there was still a problem at the core of some of the assumptions. So church, if we spend years building or believing something good to then realize that we were wrong, will we turn towards the truth and confess our mistakes? And wrong and unintended wrong are nothing new in the world and definitely nothing new in the scriptures and definitely nothing new in the overarching story that we find in the Bible. So throughout different uh, times in my life, in my Christian life, the uh, scribe Ezra and the builder Nehemiah have been people that I have connected to on a personal calling level. These are Old Testament characters in the scripture. Ezra was the scribe and the scholar and the student who studied the word of God. And Nehemiah was this intercessor that not only felt the shame that was put on his people, but also tried to build something good in order to progress the kingdom of God out of shame into something better than that. Both of them ministered at the time of the people returning from exile. So you'll remember the, the, the kingdom of uh, Judah and Israel fell to the Assyrians and then to the Babylonians. They were taking away from their land. They were exiled into Babylon. There was a small remnant that remained. And then 70 years later, They were being replanted, so to speak, back into their homeland after uh, Persia overtook Babylon. And so the exiles are returning into here. And now Ezra and Nehemiah are here trying to rebuild and reestablish the people of God at at that place. So six months ago, someone prayed the verses of Nehemiah over me again, which is, again, a kind of a rhythm of my life. And I went back to see if there was any new revelation from the book that during this time in my life that I could glean. And I came across this paper uh, from 2010 from Professor uh, Ray Lubeck, who is a professor of Bible and theology at Multnomah in Oregon. And it bothly intrigued me, and it also challenged my wayward heart. I've always taken, for the most part, for Ezra and Nehemiah to be a success story. And that the frustrating parts that happened in Ezra and Nehemiah had to do because of the others, the people they were trying to lead. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah weren't perfect, but they did the right thing in the right way. Right? Right? The Torah and the temple and the city walls were all reestablished, so there was success in what they decided to do. But here's the antithesis. What if the word of God, as revealed through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, is more so a warning to be careful that you are not successful in the wrong thing? What if Ezra and Nehemiah are more so trying to say not how to do this and how to do it successfully, even though there's frustration, but what if it's saying don't be successful in the wrong thing? Ezra and Nehemiah in the biblical story did some, let me get Josh Harris off the screen there. Ezra and Nehemiah did some great things in their ministry. They were... Um, these things were obvious. They were committed to prayer. They were committed to worship, both personally and corporately. They were devoted to the scriptures and overcame significant obstacles in trying to rebuild the culture. They confessed both past sins of the people and themselves, and they also confessed the faithfulness of God in their midst. They desired goodness for the people. But Ezra and Nehemiah faltered in their hyper-exclusivity. And that's where things began to crumble. They didn't listen to the prophets of their day, nor take into account a gospel trajectory that they were blessed in order to what? To bless others. To bless the other. That their nation, that their people, was blessed in order to bless other nations, as was revealed in Genesis with uh, the covenant with Abraham. And this combination of a little bit of fear and not realizing the trajectory all the way, had them build these physical walls that may have been good, but they came to represent this deeper spiritual reality that was a symbol of division rather than of redemptive inclusion of the people of God. So part of Israel being led into captivity became um, an issue because of what? Because of idol worship. That all the nations around them were worshiping another god besides Yahweh. And so there was this uh, inappropriate pluralism where let's take some of this god and mix it with some of our god and then uh, we'll be at peace with one another and everything will be good. And so they connected themselves to other gods that were not the one true god, Yahweh. And there were commands in the Torah of Moses from long ago that prohibited certain intermarriages between the Israelites and these foreign nations. It's called the dirty seven. It's not That's not what it says in the scripture, but there's seven of them, and then there's probably another four or five that are added to that. That you're not supposed to intermingle with them. Why? Because they're going to turn your hearts away from the one true God. It makes sense. It made sense for Ezra and Nehemiah that they didn't want the corruption that happened long ago to happen again. And so they made laws, they made edicts that called for the divorce of all foreigners from Israel and the exclusion of anyone that was part of the community based simply off of foreign descent. It seemed as though they were doing the right thing by purifying this mess that had been made. Yet the Statue of Limitation had passed about a thousand years prior to that in what Moses wrote. And there was always this sense of that those foreigners, those others, that were going to make Israel's God, Yahweh, their God, were part of Israel. That they were part of the community. In fact, there's other laws in uh, the Torah, in the laws of Moses, that said you do not treat the alien that has joined themselves to the Lord any differently then you treat uh, a pure-blood Israelite. That they are one and the same. They are to be treated as the community. But now with Ezra and Nehemiah, anyone who was unlike the Israelites was discarded. This edict was put into place, and this is probably this idea of, you need to actually, I'm calling for a divorce across the land. About 25, 35, 40 years later, the prophet Malachi had many things that he was saying to the leadership of the replanted uh, Israel, of the replanted Jerusalem. And one of those things was, God hates divorce. And so there's this idea that these edicts, these laws that Ezra and Nehemiah put into place, again, with good intention, maybe, that then propagated themselves were not good that they were becoming hyper-exclusive, that they were adding to the word of God, that they were not following a gospel trajectory, they were not following a blessed to be a blessing to all nations trajectory. And so we have the prophet Malachi coming against the leader saying, return to the wife of your youth because God hates divorce. Furthermore, Ezra and Nehemiah denied help from those who were not of Israel in rebuilding the temple and the city. Again, this seems like the smart thing to do from the mindset of an exile. You don't want those other people screwing things up. You don't want there to be sabotage. You don't want them to kind of build this wall that's going to fall apart because they're actually against you. We don't want that to happen. We want to rebuild and we want to be pure. We want to be part of this purity culture. And we will be safe and secure. We don't want those other people to mess things up, so let's justify it by some not-so-subtle racism. Yet before the exile happened, Jeremiah, who we studied before here at Cornerstone, um, prophesied that God would take the wicked neighbors of Israel, so these foreigners, these people of the other nations, and he would uproot them also through the Babylonian uh, exile, the Assyrian exile, all of that stuff. And yet when that uproot was happening, he was actually going to replant and reestablish them with the people of Israel. That he was going to take those people that were the wicked nations and he was going to establish them among his people. The prophet Zechariah, who was a contemporary, so he was prophesying around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah should have heard his words. Talked about how uh, people from far away the foreigners, the others, the Gentiles, the non-people of Yahweh. We're going to actually come to seek God and to ask to learn from the Jewish people, who is this God? Because we see that he is with you and we want to know more about him. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, said that the foreigners will rebuild the walls. And another vision of Zechariah, portrayed that the city, Jerusalem, actually would not have walls in a poetic uh, fashion because there was going to be so many people in it. Because it wasn't going to be just Israel that was going to return in the exile. But there was going to be this welcome and this all-encompassing inclusion of those that wanted to know about the one true God. And that maybe there wasn't even going to be walls because there was going to be so many people that walls would have gotten in the way. Again, poetic language. But it says that God himself will be a wall around Jerusalem of fire, and he will be the one that protects them, not these physical walls. So we have Jeremiah, we have Zechariah, we have Malachi, we have Isaiah having this kind of thread. And yet we have um, Ezra and Nehemiah, again, doing what I would say was uh, at least in part motivated by good intentions and yet also became corrupt because of their hyper-exclusivity. We remember that God's house will be called a house of prayer, and a house of prayer for whom? All people. All nations. God was speaking through the prophets, I'm going to take those who will come to me. And those that are of questionable motivation, you know what, they still need to be around my people so that they can know who I am, so that they can know who the one true God is. And yet the temple and the walls and the way they went up, I would say again, in the way they went up, became the symbol of division rather than the symbol of uh, an all-embracing call to the good news of the Father's love. The people of God's hurtful exclusion blocked the redemptive inclusion, and just so that there are no mistakes, this isn't just a Jewish to a Gentile thing. All throughout the the New Testament, we also see this rub of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. In Galatian, we have uh, Paul talk about how there are these Judaizers that are trying to get the Gentile Christians to perform certain parts of the Jewish law that they don't need to. But also at the end of Romans, we have Gentile Christians that are trying to get Jewish Christians to stop being Jewish, even though they believe in the Messiah, because ah, they're weaker, they need those laws. Even though they weren't trying to necessarily push those people weren't trying to push those laws on the Gentile Christians. And so this idea of hyper and hurtful exclusivism doesn't just go from Jew to Gentile. It goes from Gentile to Jew. And it's not just a problem with the Jewish nation. and It's not just a problem with uh, the Gentile nations. It's a human sinful problem. Did everybody see um, the news yesterday about the P- Pittsburgh shooting? For those of you who don't know, uh, 11 were killed yesterday in a synagogue. Um, and again, I don't want to The suspect, and I don't know where things are now. There was definitely some, uh, from what I understood, some racist intent in that. That he came in with an assault rifle and three handguns and killed 11 people, shot a couple others. So this also isn't something that while we as individuals, which I would still question, are completely over any kind of uh, um, separating between people, that this is still something that's not just in a culture long ago. And I don't know if this gentleman had mental problems or whatever, but there's still something in the air, especially in American culture, of not caring or caring less about the other or not trying to connect with the other that is different than you. Regardless, you know, racism distinctly is one of those things. But even what about the person that is just different from you, that is other from you, that has a different uh, Christian tradition from you that you think they're a little whacked out? And we all know that we're a mess. But when we build up these inappropriate walls that separate us, we're going against the gospel trajectory that Jesus would have for us. At the end of Nehemiah, after the Reforms, that he and Ezra put into place. Things were built, but they didn't take root. The temple was in shambles. People returned to some of their old sinful ways and the presence of God did not fill the temple as it did before. Nehemiah is so frustrated that he starts pulling out people's hair. He's not pulling out his own hair. He's pulling out other people's hair. And there's like part of that where you're kind of like, oh, I get that. You know what I mean? Where you get frustrated with somebody. There's there's good ways to connect with an uh, Yet that probably wasn't the right thing to do. And he has this prayer at the end that can, that like is, you know, it says, God, please remember me and remember the things I did for your people. That is like kind of this, yeah, you know how it is to pray that. I've worked on this for so long. Remember that I did this, and yet also kind of like kind of like a plea. did I do? Remember me, God, that I, I thought that I was doing something out of your heart, or I was doing something out of your heart, yet not in the right way. Nehemiah is so frustrated that he starts pulling out people's hairs and in part, all of these things from Ezra and Nehemiah, these reforms, ended up birthing the Pharisees in some Jewish traditions. Ezra is the first Pharisee. Remember, Pharisees to start were not a bad thing. They wanted to um, uh, respond and keep the word of God, the Torah, because they didn't want to go back into exile. But again, they added to the word of God and made it about the action rather than the heart. And that's where Jesus went after, went after, him, after them a lot. And so not only did this happen but it kind of continued this long-lasting generational rift that we read in the New Testament about Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. Samaritans would have been the people that Ezra and Nehemiah were saying you need to divorce because you're you're half-blood. You're part from this other nation, you're part from here. And there was that rift that we can see all through the Gospels and the new and the New Testament. In order to have as the church a redemptive Inclusivity, which is an all-encompassing gospel invitation, we need to reform our hurtful exclusivity and ask what walls that we have built should come down. As we go to the communion table today and to prayer, communion will be over here, prayer will be over here. I'm going to read from uh, chapter two of Ephesians and I'm going to read it from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Another point of news if you didn't hear, Eugene Peterson passed away this week. Um, he, if you don't know him, he was the translator of the message, uh, which, in my opinion, was actually his weakest work. He provided so many um, deep, heartfelt pastoral works that talk to liturgy and to worship and to the heart of caring for one another that, like, um, it, it's a loss. You know, it's like having a an older grandfather that you didn't really know, but that you kind of knew, pass away. It's kind of a weird celebrity thing maybe, but like he was one of those people that mentored many people, including myself, through his writings. Uh, one of my favorite things, quick side story, one of my favorite things, he was an old dude that didn't really care about anything, and I saw him uh, speaking at a conference one time, and he kept pulling up his his, uh, his shirt. Like, I don't even know what he was doing. He was just talking about it, and he had these huge socks on, and the guy that was interviewing him was, I have two different socks on. The guy, the guy that was interviewing him was really hipster. Um, and he was like, you could tell that the guy interviewing him was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And Eugene Peterson's just like, my legs are hot. I'm going to pull these things up as I'm talking about some deep theological truth and the practical application of it. And uh, at one point, the guy comes over and starts pulling them down. I'm like, no, don't do that. You don't do that to Eugene Peterson. You just let him be, man. You just let him be. Um, but that was a, a fun memory that I had. Of seeing him at the conference. So I want to read uh, this that talks about this new humanity that that Jesus is doing, that God is doing through the gospel. Uh, We need something that is internal to our transformation. We desire to rebuild the church and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild our city. But if there is not Holy Spirit-led transformation that occurs in our hearts, those things are going to be superfluous. And we need the gospel of Christ. We need the Holy Spirit that he sent to work that in our hearts to lead us into confession and repentance. So Courtney, Kyle, and Tessa will be over here for prayer. Uh, Tessa will be leading a group of Amplify students. You can receive prayer for anything today. It doesn't have to be anything that I said in the past, anything that comes to mind. However, um, consider these questions. You know, how do you divide yourself acting in different situations other than your true self? Is there a way that you can ask for prayer for that? Who are your others? Who are your foreigners? Who are the people or the groups of people that you exclude as just too different to care about? How does the church inappropriately separate itself from the world? It is called to love. And if we spend years building or believing something good to then realize that we were wrong, will we turn towards the truth and confess our mistakes so in summary, I would invite everybody here that is sitting in a chair or not sitting in a chair to receive prayer today, and maybe this can be your, your prayer request. God, show me and transform me in my better-than-the-other mindset that distances me from the calling and the relational interactions of your gospel. Like, maybe you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, you know, this other thing is an issue. But I'm not really, I I think it is an issue for everybody in here. And maybe it's not uh, specifically um, the color of our skin issue. It might be, though, that this kind of stuff is not just a Pittsburgh problem. This is also a Lebanon problem. But it could be other things. Like, who are the others that you're just kind of like, those idiots that puts up some kind of wall that doesn't allow the gospel to actually um, spread the way it's supposed to spread. So God, show me. I don't know. And then not only show me, but lead me in some kind of transformation. So maybe the people that are praying for you are just asking God to reveal something to you this week. And then for you, encourage and in the grace of Jesus to come and to um, seek that out in the Lord. So I'm going to call the team back up, uh, the worship team. Again, next week uh, is the opposite of this. What do we need as far as redemptive exclusivity? What are the, the the ties that should bind us together? But today it's about what walls need to come down in the church for reformation and for love to happen. If you want to follow along in your scriptures, you can, you might get more lost if you're not reading the message. Um, one of the great parts in this is uh, at, at some portion in here, he talks about The idea of uh, Jesus took down the wall of separation, that Jesus did this. And if you remember in the temple, uh, in the New Testament temple, there was the outer courts of who? Gentiles, good. That those that were connected to the Lord could come so far that were Gentiles into the presence. But there was this dividing law. You're part of us, but you're not really part of us. And it says there that Jesus came to destroy that dividing wall. That is not the, uh, the, the, the people of God of old. And then there's other people that, yeah, they attach themselves to God, but they're not really in. They're not really part of the community. And about how Jesus stripped that away. So again, this is from Ephesians 2. After this, uh, we will go into communion. Communion will be over here. If you're visiting Cornerstone, we rip the bread. We dip it into the juice. We remember the blood of the new covenant. That's an extension of God's heart from the very beginning. And how Jesus has the power through his brokenness to transform us. And invites us into our brokenness too. Like, where are we broken? Where are the pieces of us that have this unhealthy, exclusive nature, these walls that need to come down? And so we remember the blood of Christ shed and how he is the one that we gather around, not our skin color, not our ethnicity, not our religious traditions, not our how much money we make, not our, how we, uh, not our dialect, but it's around his table that we gather as the center point of our faith. This is from Ephesians 2. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in the old, stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, And then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing. When we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust in him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us in Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work that we should be doing. But don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of the rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. Hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall. Again, that wall of hostility, it's making reference to that. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code. That had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders. And peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. Cornerstone, you are no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home community. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name of Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using all of us, irrespective of how we got here, in what he is building. He used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. So Cornerstone, let us engage in worship and reflection on what Christ has come to do, on the state of our own hearts, Um, not wallowing in shame, but thanking God for light and for love to seriously consider who are the others in, in, in our lives, who are the others in the life of the corporate church. And let us go um, and listen to the Spirit. Let us go and tangibly take of the bread and the cup. And remember that, again, this isn't just some high ideal, but this needs to be lived out in the flesh by the Spirit. And let us worship the God who called us that, I don't know if uh, who here has actual Jewish background, but all of us were outsiders. All of us were outsiders. All of us were outsiders. And God brought us in. And it was his uh, purpose from the beginning to have a world filled with his glory of every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him. And just as Gene said earlier, he alone is worthy and able to do that. We want to join him in his work as we think about uh, the reformation of the church in our day and age. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done in taking down the of hostility. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to speak to our minds and speak to our hearts about who the other is. It could be somebody in our household. It could be somebody at work. It could be somebody uh, in this church building right now. It could be somebody that we've never actually met. It could be this labeled group of people that we have put a wall up to not even uh, consider um, the image of God in them and how the gospel uh, might flow between, uh, between us and from you. So who is that other in our lives, God? And would you lead us um, step by step, brick by brick, as far as transformation, God, We confess that we don't know everything. We confess that we don't have everything figured out. We confess that we build things with good intention sometimes that just aren't of you. We confess that we build things that you've asked us to build and we get off track. We ask us to, uh, we want you to take your hands of grace and truth that are both strong, and merciful, and we want you to lift up our heads, and we want you to turn our faces towards you and away from uh, this harmful and hurtful exclusivism, and into the all-encompassing gospel that you call us to live, and to preach, and to uh, share with others. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.